Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a uh, screening of a film this evening at 6 o'clock and discussion. The film is Whose Streets, a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising. And the screening will be followed by a conversation featuring scholars, organizers, and community leaders. This is happening on the USU campus in Logan and uh, presented by USU's Culture and Mental Health Lab, the Merrill-Kazir Library, and the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection. Inviting you to this conversation and screening. That's 6 o'clock tonight. Doors open. Screening conversation at 6.30 at the Taggart Student Center Auditorium. We're going to uh, piggyback on this event and uh, dis- discuss the, uh, the uh, themes of the film and uh, related topics. And we bring in Christian Stetler, uh, USU Access and Diversity Center. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Kiki Trevali is a USU student in Communication Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We bring in Will Munger, who is a, uh, coming in as a USU graduate student in climate adaptation science. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. And Rachel Hyman is a community member and uh, will be coming in to USU's pre-med. Thanks uh, for student. having me. Thanks for, thanks for coming in. Um, so uh, I guess, uh, Rachel and Will, you're uh, instrumental in organizing this event. Maybe starting with Rachel, why... Why have this event? Sure. Um, I think this film, Whose Streets, which is a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, uh, is really important in our community, particularly in this time, because it humanizes resistance against police brutality. And it opens up a conversation in, in the campus context and then also in our larger community context about how we can uh, unite with people of color if you're white and sort of work across those racial lines to speak about issues that connect us and unite us and that is like liberation freedom dignity mm. will munger what uh, what's your perspective on this why why going to organize this event well i think what's particularly important about this is understanding our place in larger historical patterns um you know here in catch valley um we're far away from ferguson missouri but these issues around uh, police brutality um, state violence um, dealing with a racist history, um, they affect us here. And uh, these are the sort of events where we need to ask the hard questions and uh, have some hard conversations together. And I'm really looking forward to that happening. Um, at USU, uh, just in the past couple weeks, um, we've seen some really important events with Angela Davis coming. Um, and in the larger uh, Cache Valley area, we're having some really critically important conversations about race, about uh, colonialist history, and about um, what is our relationship with each other in the land. And um, it's really exciting to see so many people in the community really wanting to talk about these sort of things in a um, in a deep way, not in a shallow or surface way. And what the film does and is really important is shows uh, a deeply human portrait of the people involved in this. It follows uh, activists who were um, really uh, catalyzed to start uh, working on these issues because of how it affected their community. And you get to see them in their daily lives and kind of them grow into their role as activists. Um, and I think that's so important because you get to see why people are involved in the movements that they're involved in. We'll talk about uh, Whose Streets. This is a documentary, of course, about the Ferguson Uprising. So, Christian, I want to uh, direct this first to you, and then uh, Kiki. um, This is from the director's statement on the website for the film. Every day, Americans experience a mediascape that humanizes whiteness, delving into emotional lives of privileged white protagonists, while portraying people of color as two-dimensional, mostly negative stereotypes. And the director goes on to, uh, to to talk about Mike Brown, who's who's heading to college, bright young man, well regarded in the community, but who the director of the film says turned out to be portrayed as a, a thug and a criminal. 
um, this, this idea, and Rachel brought this up earlier, dehumanization of people of color. Right. I mean, I think turn on any TV show that features um, specifically African-Americans, black people, and they're either portrayed as often um, reaching unrealistic high expectations, if that makes sense, or they're portrayed as a criminal, a drug dealer, or perhaps an NBA player or a rapper. Um, and they're just not humanized, if that makes sense. Mm. Kiki Trawley, I wonder, um, oh, talk about those images. And Do you agree with that? This is, you know, dehumanization or uh, negative stereotypes? Or are you seeing positive images out there? Um, well, obviously, there's a lot of negative stereotypes of people of color that's portrayed in the media. Just like how Christian says, we're either seen as thugs or gangsters or we're either drug dealing or some sort of uh like obviously there's people out there that do do that do sell drugs that are thugs or that are gangsters but then to put that as a whole um as a generalization of a group of people that are so much more um is always it it's always disheartening because it's like you try your best every day to prove um to people that you're not something that they've already put out for you so you're trying to put their whatever expectation or whatever they assumed about you every day you're fighting for to change their mindset and sometimes it gets tiring because it's like I don't want to keep you know changing myself or proving that oh no I'm more than what you see in the media or no I'm not a thug no I'm not a gangster yes I I was raised in the city you know I graduated with the 3.8 I'm here at USU with a full scholarship you know and most people don't know that just by seeing me you know first it's my skin color then it goes deeper than that and it never is never who are you truly Kiki you know and things like that so mm. And so you're talking about is Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. Right, you're raised in Salt Lake City. So tell me a little bit about, um, have, you, have you encountered uh, <laughs> these stereotypes of racism in, uh, Utah. in, in good old Utah? <laughs> Utah Utah's an interesting state. I think it's a, a safe place for most, but some it's not. Me, personally, I grew up in a great neighborhood. I grew up in Mill Creek. Um, people were accepting, but... Not everyone knew, you know, because I grew up as a Muslim, so already I'm already trying to um, fight stereotypes based off my skin color. Then now it's my religion and things like that. So that was a little hard growing up because with the things, just terrorist attacks, ISIS and things like that, people would automatically just stay away from me or, you know, call me names and things like that but I've always been an outspoken person and I've always said um whatever you label me is not what I am if you want to know about me come and talk to me but if you're going to base your assumption at the end of the day they're just assumptions so um Utah like my friends have had worse um I personally can say like I think the one time where I felt like just I was attacked was I think ninth grade I was walking home with my two brothers so we were walking from school and we always do this but a cop pulled up and automatically we've already 
uh, we've already knew we've been targeted because he we were walking forward and we could see that he was just idling right behind us and my brothers they hold my hands they were like don't be scared it's fine and to me like now that i think about it, it it's it's um it's hard to think that already at age 16 and 15, they've already started protecting themselves against um, police and things like that. Because the cop, he stopped us and um, he looked at m- my twin brother and he said, there's going to be no harm. I just want to talk to you guys because there's been something going on. I'm just trying to figure it out. And my brother was like, okay. And so they put me behind their back and just to protect me. And the cop was like, oh, there was a um, robbery uh, two blocks down. And the guy that did the robbery fit your description. And so we were automatically thinking, okay, why, why would we rob anything? And we kept explaining to him. We're like, oh, we just came from school. Our school is right here, Conwood High School. Um we don't know anything about robbery we've never stole like our mother raised us right i'm like we have african mom like (laughs) but um he just kept pressuring on and on and at that point we were close to the house where my brother gave me the phone and he was like call mom and so i just walked away and the officer was like where are you going and i was like oh i'm like nowhere i'm just calling my mom maybe she can figure this out i'm like we're really just scared and things like that and i think that was my first reality with just like that at the end of the day, yes, I might feel safe or I might feel okay. There's always going to be something that's going to just pull me back and bring me back to the real realization that my skin color will always come first before anything else. So, mm. I want to, to, to bring this back briefly to uh, to Ferguson. Uh, Whose streets is the film? It's a documentary about Ferguson that's going to be uh, aired tonight at six thirty. Conversation follows. Everyone's invited. Doors open at six o'clock. Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Um, so th- this, you know, this, th- this, this was precipitated by the killing of Mike Brown, but there's a long history behind that, right? I don't know if somebody wants to drop in, jump in and talk about that. Uh, there, there's a, there's a lot of pressure building up. You know, the, the film starts, the, the film is based in Ferguson, Missouri, which is St. Louis. And uh, the film opens with a quote from the Dred Scott decision, um, which is historically important because it showed uh, that our legal system recognized black lives as less than human. And um, then when it cuts to uh, the scene in Ferguson, uh, what you see is that uh, black lives aren't uh, equated equally uh, in this country, um, even though we might want that on one level, the reality uh, is not that. Um, and so the film is important because it shows that history is still happening and the historical patterns that have uh, defined this country are still happening. And I think that's something that we see in a larger context, whether it's um, uh, a history of colonization and violence towards Native people, whether in Standing Rock, North Dakota, or in here in Utah, in the case of the Bears Ears, um, there are still policies of colonization that are ongoing. And similarly, if we look at the prison industrial complex in the United States, we see a massive incarceration of black and brown people and um, the use of those people for forced labor um, and for a profit-generating motive um, makes us ask the question, what's changed? And there's clearly been changes, but um, not enough. And um, if indeed Black Lives Matter, which I think that as white people we need to be supporting, um, then uh, we have work to do. Um, And these are the sort of conversations and perspectives that we need to be listening to. Um, And I'm really excited that that conversation is happening here in Utah. The other part that I think is really important is that in response 
response to this uprising, we see an incredible militarization of the police. Um, and if you look at the scenes from Ferguson, you might not be able to distinguish them from a place like Iraq or Syria. And I think there's a larger conversation around police militarization that actually has been happening in Utah a lot. There's a really excellent panel that happened at the Salt Lake Public Library a couple of years ago when uh, Radley Balco, um, who's a writer about uh, police militarization, came and spoke. And what was particularly incredible is you had you know former sheriffs from Davis County, you had mothers of people uh, killed by Salt Lake police comparing notes, and people said, yeah, there there is a problem. And we do need to talk about police militarization, the budgets, the weaponry, the mindset there. Um, and those might be hard conversations to have, but we need to start doing that because um, the bodies on the streets tell the real story. And more importantly, people's anger tells that story. And Ferguson was the spark that started a huge struggle across the country in Minneapolis, in Baltimore, in so many different places. And you see people recognize that historical pattern playing out, that we still have work to do to achieve racial justice in this country. Um, and that work is unfinished. Um, and you know what Angela Davis really reminded us uh, last week was the contribution of the black freedom struggle to the betterment of us all. Um, and I think that that struggle is ongoing. And um, I think that we're very fortunate to be able to participate in it. Mm. That's Will Munger. Um, so he says, work still to do. What, what, <laughs> how, to, how to go about that? What, uh, what form does that take? Uh, just to back up just a little bit before we go into that. Um, Ferguson is a long way from Logan, Utah, or Utah in general. Um, but if we bring it here to Utah, there's a couple things to point out. I don't know if anybody saw the, the, uh, the video shooting of Patrick Harmon in Salt Lake City last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's debatable on what happened. Um, the, the police's response. But what was interesting to me is afterwards, you know, um, he's on his stomach, he's gagging, he's obviously not going to do anything, but he still gets handcuffed and left there for a long time. And so is that how we viewed his life, if that makes sense? I mean, um, there was an altercation, so it was unfortunate what happened, but how do we treat him after? Um, you know, how do we look at Patrick, hum- or Patrick Harmon as a human being? Um, another thing would be, I think it was in 2016, the, uh, the Sheriff's Association, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm getting the name right, but they put out a letter uh, condemning marijuana, uh, medical marijuana, the legalization of marijuana, all of those things. Well, a lot of the points that they made in, the, uh, in this letter reflected the, uh, the origins of the, de- or of the criminalization of marijuana and other drugs, which was... Um, just completely full of racist rhetoric. And this just this wasn't in the media. This was the actual people making the laws using this rhetoric um, from changing, uh, you know, marijuana used to be spelled with an H. Now it's spelled with a J. Um, you know, with the Negro cocaine fiends that they advertised back, uh, back in the day uh, that, uh, you know, Mexicans were using marijuana and they were coming after white women, things like that. But those, uh, those ideas were just regurgitated in the letter and none of it was factual, if, if that makes sense. Um, the third thing was I read an article in the, in the Ogden Standard Examiner last week, um, and it detailed that, uh, and I could be getting the numbers a little bit off, but uh, minorities were given print prison sentences in 2016 at double the rate of white people. So if you know racism only exists in these inner cities, if that's what we're calling them, or back east or in the south, then why do we have double the rates in, in, in Utah? Hmm. I wonder, um, Rachel, your perspective. You've come in recently from New York City. Yeah, that's right. What's uh, what's your perspective, especially in terms of the you know with the lens of race? Yeah, that's on, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Utah, for one thing, I'm, I'm you know, imagine you know, it's a very, very white state. Imagine that's your perspective too, Kiki. <laughs> um, growing up here in in Salt Lake City. Yeah, so I um, was finishing up a master's program in New York City for the last two years, and I was up at Columbia, which is up in Harlem. And um, just to give you an idea of how that area is being racialized from like a predominantly African-American or black place in the city to being more of a white neighborhood. So Columbia is in Harlem. It's now called Morningside Heights. So that's how the real estate developers are starting to really push gentrification. And a lot of my neighbors are... Um, Puerto Rican, Dominican, and also black, um, African as well. And I've had many conversations with them where like, you know, I'm going to a bodega and I'm going to go like get a coffee and I'm talking to, um, Samir and he's like, Hey, I had a really bad day today. I got rounded up by, you know, cops just for like sitting on my stoop in my neighborhood. And those are stories you hear all the time. The police presence in, uh, Harlem in New York city is like, it's, it's pretty immense. And their their job is to harass people of color. Um, and in Logan, I've seen, um, I haven't seen as much of that kind of policing here, but I'm, I'm sure it's here. And like hearing the stories of what's happened in Salt Lake uh, really demonstrates that. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to, I want to bring in uh, Ibram Kendi, who was recently brought in by the um, USU Access and Diversity uh, Center. Um, had an interesting conversation with him, and I think our listeners are familiar with his book, Stamp from the Beginning. Uh, just going into break, um, I'll quote this. He, uh, Dr. Kennedy says um, about Trump's election, uh, President Trump's election, left many Americans in shock. Neither of the two popular, uh, popular race, uh, racial histories prepared uh, shocked Americans for the advent of Donald Trump. R- neither Republicans' post-racial narrative nor Democrats' narrative of the march of racial progress. Uh, I want to talk about the, this, there's power in narrative, and uh, I think many of us carry those narratives. One of the two uh, narratives, uh, which was each of those was sort of knocked off its, its foundations by the election of uh, Donald Trump, at least in the view of many. More following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are uh, talking about an event that's happening this evening at 6 o'clock on the USU campus. There'll be a screening of the film Whose Streets? It's a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising. And then the organizers are using this as a jumping off point to uh, have conversation featuring scholars, organizers, community leaders. And so the door is open at 6 o'clock at the Taggart Student Center Auditorium. Screening and conversation begins at 6.30 p.m. And this is organized by USU's Culture and Mental Health Lab, the Merrill Kazir Library, and the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection. And uh, we have with us uh, several uh, guests, including Christian Stetler, USU Access and Diversity Center, Kiki Chirwali, who is a USU student in Communication Studies, Will Munger, uh, incoming USU graduate student in climate, uh, climate Adaptation Science, and Rachel Hyman, who is a community member and is going to be a USU uh, pre-med uh, major. Um, so you're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. Love to get your perspective. A couple of ways to do that. By email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, so let me just 
reread this uh, quote, paraphrase from Dr. Ibram Kendi. Uh, his book is stamped from the beginning, A History of Racist Ideas in America. He said, Trump's election left many Americans in shock. Neither of the two popular racial histories prepared Americans for the advent of Donald Trump. Neither Republicans' post-racial narrative nor Democrats' narrative of the march of racial progress. And I want to start with, quote-unquote, Republicans. I imagine there are some Republicans who don't hold the post-racial narrative, but uh, I think it's, you know, it's conventional wisdom is that a lot of Republicans do. Post-racial narrative. So if I could just channel, you know, the, some of my friends who do hold this view, um, why in the world do we keep going back to this stuff it's 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 old news slavery is abolished over 100 years ago even jim crow is is uh, hopefully receding you know in the in the rearview uh, mirror and uh, i guess people like this panel <laughs> keep coming back to this over and over and over again what's uh, what's your response well if if it's snowed recently and uh, you haven't shoveled your walk all the way, you're going to be walking through some ice and slush unless you get that snow off the, the walk. And uh, in uh, American history, we have not realized um, the ideals that we profess. Um, and if you look historically um, at the United States, what you see is that after periods of liberation movements, um, we see white backlash. And this is true uh, in post-Civil War Reconstruction time and the advent of uh, domestic terrorists like the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow laws. Uh, we see it in uh, the Nixon law and order backlash against the liberation movements of the 60s and 70s. And I think a lot of the the, the white backlash that uh, is part of the Trump phenomenon is in backlash to the Black Lives Matter and immigrant rights and native rights movements that have happened. Um, and uh, history is not a clean march of progress. It's a dialectic that goes back and forth between different uh, ideals and uh, different material conditions. And if we look at the material conditions right now uh, in terms of our prison population, in terms of the number of people killed by police, in terms of uh, the daily terror that uh, our migrant neighbors face uh, from ICE raids and, and deportations, uh, we see that we have a lot of work to go. Um, and so I think we need to have a very clear-eyed view of what the situation is and listen to the realities of people who are facing that sort of thing. Hmm. Any other response to, the, to that, to the, to the uh, post-racial narrative? Um, I'd like to jump back into the Ibram X. Kendi's visit, if I can. Uh, he came and he gave a, a, a keynote speech on how to be an anti-racist. Um, I think the key takeaway from uh, his message here on campus was that it's not the correct avenue to go down to just try to identify you're a racist, I'm not a racist, blah, 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 blah. Let's identify racist ideas. And so in his book, he went all the way back to the beginnings of America and he uh, challenged the idea that there were a bunch of racist people and they created racist policies and, you know, move forward to today. He says that uh, there were people that needed the racist policies in order to push the slave trade. And so they created racist ideas and we are still regurgitating those racist ideas today. And so um, we can analyze, do we ourselves have racist ideas? And so after he left, um, we, decided, we spent a lot of money to bring him in here. So we said, we don't just want it to stop here. So um, initially, um, I gathered a, uh, a, a large group of our multicultural students to hang out in the Access to Diversity Center, including Kiki. Um, and we talked about everything. What, what, are, what are these students experiencing in Utah at Utah State University? Um, who are their allies? We got a group of, um, of faculty, of staff, of other students, and we created uh, what we're calling the anti-racist, USU anti-racist focus groups. 
And the first thing we did as a group was we went around and we talked about the racist ideas that we had within ourselves because we can't go around criticizing everybody else um, or finding solutions if we can't even look within ourselves. And so everybody had to go around and talk about um, racist ideas that they have had in the past, that they may have now. And, um, you know, you do hear the, the people say all the time, I'm not a racist, what are you talking about? But that's not true. Everybody in America is a racist to some degree because it's been so deeply ingrained in us. Um, I try every day to be anti-racist, but I catch myself having thoughts and ideas all the time. Um, so for people that aren't aware and aren't uh, consciously focusing on these things, you're definitely uh, regurgitating racist ideas, whether you know it or not. Um, after that, you know, we, we started climbing up the ladder. Do we have racism at Utah State University? It was an easy answer, yes. Um, I'll let Kiki touch on this more, but one of the questions was, do you guys experience microaggressions? And every single student in our group, which what, there's like 20 maybe, 20, mm -hmm. 25, the, the question was not whether or not they experience microaggressions, but it was how often every day, um, from, mm -hmm. and not just from other students, but from professors. Um, but I'll let, I'll let Kiki detail those, those experiences. Yeah, tell us about that. And first, for people who don't uh, aren't familiar with the term, what's, what are we talking about when we talk about microaggressions? So with microaggression, it's, it's like um, me as a woman of color or something like that, you coming up to me and saying, um, like, oh, can I touch your hair? Or, um, or are you an athlete? So uh, with microaggression, it's automatically assuming something about my race or about um, my skin color based on assumptions, just like how I touched in the beginning. And with this, um, we talked about at USU, um, some of the microaggressions that we face personally with just, um, I guess the school as a whole. So we're with the Access and Diversity Center and we have a room upstairs on the TSC third floor, which we call the MSS. And it's almost a safe space for um, us minorities here at USU and things like that. And it's where we can just sit and hang out with our friends. And and it's just a place for us to just go and always automatically feel welcome. And so with this anti-focus, um, anti-racism focus group, um, with the chuck of microaggression, there was many, a lot of us um, on a daily just face a lot of microaggression and things like that. Because I remember coming to USU um the first thing that I kept getting asked was if if I play any sport. And I was genuinely confused why they would think I play a sport. I'm like, uh, I'm like, no, I'm here on an academic scholarship. Don't really play sport, not the sport type and things like that. And I kept thinking, I'm like, okay, what's what started that um, thinking that you just see me as a black woman and thinking, oh, are you an athlete? I'm like, is that all we're good for? I'm like, obviously we have great athletes that are black and not to put them down or anything like that, but it's like there's other tons of careers, other tons of um, activities that we do and things like that. So um, this focus group, I think it's a really important group for USU because I think it um, opens up a conversation um, with USU and it and it invites them in because sometimes people think that um, us minorities were so secluded that we don't want to answer questions because we've been answering questions for years and years and years and years and so with this anti-focus group it 
invites them in to come in, learn from our perspective, and we learn from theirs. And from then, we try to figure out a way to move on or figure out a way to better ourselves, better the school, and things like that. And it started out as a small group, honestly, um, but now it's built huge. We had um, Dr. Morales, um, the vice president of diversity, and Eric Olson come in and have them talk. Uh, have us give our concern about what the school's doing wrong or what we need from them and then in April we're having Noelle Cockett come to this focus group and have her hear um, our concerns and um, so we're preparing for that trying to um, get everything ready for that trying to tell her like this is what's happening at USU this is what we need help with and things like that and um, yeah that's honestly what it is. Are these, do you have, uh, you have conversations peer to peer, student to student? So we, um, it's up in the TSE uh, third floor. What's the room called? Senate chamber. The Senate chambers. And then we just all sit and then usually we'll start out with any events that's happening or things like that. And then um, we'll break into about like four groups and each group each week we have like different topics that we're talking about and things like that and so then we break into four group there's videos that they watch or articles that they talk about and then they discuss um that and then we come back as a group and we um learned about what everyone was watching or everyone was reading and things like that and then just move on from that mm. or um we were recently trying to go to Washington, D.C. for um, a book fair with Ibram X, which unfortunately didn't work out, but that wasn't on our part. But we usually figure um, things out with that, like grants and what we need to do from our parts. It's it's just it's just a way to bring conversation about anything and everything in that room. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. I wonder, and maybe uh, go ahead with what you're going to say, and then then maybe uh, get the panel to respond to this. Uh, what, what I was trying to probe here is, sounds like these conversations can be successful. I think the you know cross racial lines and about race specifically, and not and not beating around the bush. But I think the default setting for many is it's a third rail. I don't want to touch that. It's too uncomfortable. Don't want to talk about it. Right, and I think just to touch on what Kiki was saying about we call them our breakout groups at the beginning of, of each focus group, and uh, Kiki's always one of the leaders. Uh, a few of our other uh, students of color are leaders, and they dominate the conversation. They, they lead the conversation, so it totally reverses the dynamic that everyone experiences at Utah State University, whether every class they go to, every meeting they go to, whatever it is, um, it's going to be white-dominated, and that's largely just because it's mostly a white campus. Um, but we hear their needs, their experiences, their feelings about things. And I've been told by three separate uh, faculty and staff members, all white people, that, it, that they've been the most meaningful experiences for them on campus this year, this academic year. Um, so I, I think that the discussions are very profound. One of the discussions that we had was around, um, Ibram X. Kennedy put out an article in the New York Times um, right after the new year called um, Denial is the what is it? I can't remember. Oh, denial is the heart heartbeat of racism. Something like that. And um, I think that that's that's 
that's such a profound statement here at uh, Utah State University or in Logan, Utah, or in Utah in general. Um, we want to deny that there's a problem, but if there's no, sorry, let me back up a little bit. If there's no problem, why do we have the same high incarceration rates in a in a state where minority uh, the popul the minority population is so low? Why do we have these problems? Why do our students sit here in in our groups and articulate all of the issues that they experience on a day to day basis? Are they just making it up? Um, what, what would they gain from that? Um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, there are signs of progress. I, I, I take the recent uh, discussion of the sham battle. You, you brought this up, uh, Will. Um, th- I think there was a resolution that sides got together, Shoshone Tribe and Wellsville City, and it uh, seemed like they, both sides wanted to work on that and, and, and resolve that. Well, I think that's an ongoing conversation, and there's work to be done. And I think this is a really clear example where um, we can see uh, a, a racist colonialist history. Um, the, the Bear River Massacre was one of the largest massacres of indigenous people uh, in the West. And uh, actually, just recently, there was a memorial um, to that uh, on the date. And uh, it was pretty groundbreaking in a lot of ways. The um, Shoshone tribe has purchased the land where the massacre happened, um, and they're uh, working to reshape the narrative to actually talk about the historical truth of what's happened. You know, there's this false narrative that it was uh, this uh, battle and uh, not this um, very intentional land grab that happened. Um, and most importantly, that the Shoshone are still our neighbors. And so when a uh, event like the Sham Battle uh, indulges in these really egregious racial stereotypes, you know, people in red face um, and uh, reenacting this in a way that makes the Shoshone, who are members of our community, our neighbors, uh, feel not only uncomfortable or uh, marginalized, but literally gives a inaccurate uh, historical representation of how our community came to be, then we have to respond to that. And I was actually really heartened to see a number of white people come out to the Wellsville City Council in support of the Shoshone. Um, And that conversation in the Wellsville City Council chambers was very charged. um, And it was very interesting to see people grapple with that history. Um, And we're very fortunate to have leaders like Darren Perry, um, who are um, incredible uh, spokespeople for their people, but also engage in that conversation that brings people in doesn't just say, you know, oh, you're racist and we don't want to hear from you, but says, let's work together to create a better community that is accurate in terms of how we deal with these historical realities. Um, you know, and at this memorial that happened last month, I was really heartened to see um, uh, a number of uh, students from Preston High. Um, you know, the Utah Attorney General was there. Um, the Lieutenant Governor was there. Um, the Idaho uh, Historical Society was there. There's clearly a sea change happening and people recognizing um, uh, the history. Um, and that I'm, I'm really happy about. Um, similarly, um, at Angela Davis's talk last week, there were thousands of students there really responding to not only uh, her calls for anti-racist struggle, but also addressing gender violence and thinking about the intersection of gender violence and racial violence and students really responded to that and I think what you're seeing uh, to bring this back to this kind of Trump question right now right is that um, you know while there might have been a white backlash I think the uh, dialectic in response to that is going to be even greater and I'm really happy to see leaders like Kiki um, leading the way there and um, you know as uh, a white male who grew up in this community I want to support that sort of leadership because I my life is better when uh, we have overcome racism and we have work to go and I'm an ally in that struggle and like Christian said that we haven't 
uh, overcome that in ourselves. And I think it's important to look at a personal level in terms of how we might reproduce that in daily life, but then also on a material and structural level. And just to give an example of that, you know, it you know, has barely been a decade since uh, the, the ice raids at the meatpacking plant here in town that spread incredible terror amongst uh, migrant populations, amongst uh, workers at that plant. Um, and now with this specter of new ice raids happening, that terror is still there. Um, you know, and I think that Utahns uh, recognize that we're better than that and that uh, migrant communities bring a great deal to our uh, lives and that we want to stand in solidarity with them. And um, that's why... Um, at every uh, turn, I, you see people in Utah standing up for their neighbors, um, responding uh, to that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, the work is not done, but it's happening. And I really uh, uh, salute uh, people who are doing that work here and invite other people to join in because this is how we build a stronger community. Let me just uh, want to go to break and we'll come back with our last segment. I uh, want to uh, note, based on what you just said, that uh, the proceeds, uh, donations are welcome tonight, 6 o'clock. Proceeds go to the Cash Refugee and Immigrant uh, Connection, one of the sponsors of the event. Uh, just to mention, uh, there's uh, film screening and discussion tonight at 6 o'clock in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. The uh, screening is of the documentary Whose Streets? It's a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising. Doors open at 6, screening and conversation at 6.30, and the, uh, the conversation will feature scholars, organizers, and community leaders. And free admission, but donations are welcome. As I mentioned, the proceeds will go to Cash, Refugee, and Immigrant uh, Connection. Um, so uh, I want to, to take that up, the thread uh, from uh, Will Munger there, uh, that uh, you made reference to the fact that uh, President Trump has seen great success by very effectively tapping into what's obviously a, a, a strain, a reservoir of white grievance. But you're saying, Will, that uh, you think that'll be met and more than met by, uh, by, uh, you know, the, the different forces. We'll talk about that and more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, USU's Culture and Mental Health Lab and Merrill Library and the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection are inviting uh, public to a community conversation and screening of Whose Streets, a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising. That's tonight at 6 in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Doors open at 6. Screening the conversation happens at 6.30 p.m. It's free admission, but donations are welcome. Proceeds will go to Cash Refugee and Immigrant uh, Connection. We have with us uh, Rachel Hyman, who is a community member and incoming USU pre-med student. Will Munger, USU graduate student, incoming USU graduate student in climate adaptation science. Kiki Trawali, USU student in communication studies. And Christian Stetler, who is with USU's Access and Diversity Center. You're welcome to join the program at, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you could call us toll-free, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So, uh, Will Munger, before the, uh, the break, you, you made oblique reference uh, to this, the strain of uh, white grievance. President Trump has uh, seen great success tapping into that. Um, you know, in very effective ways. Uh, for example, he he uh, he finds ways to fight that culture war. He's he's come out against NFL players who are taking a knee, and uh, he's got a lot of people on his side. Um, he he talked about uh, he he made that reference to when he's talked to the police about when you have somebody in custody, you know, rough them up a little bit, um, and he and he gets a certain amount of response uh, from from this. 
wonder, Will, you, you were saying, you acknowledged that, but you were saying you feel like the response is going to be even bigger. Well, I think like so many things that comes out of this administration, that too is just a scam. And uh, it's a cheap scam at that. Um, And one thing it's predicated on is the suppression of democracy. Um, And there's a couple examples worth looking at. One is voter ID laws. Um, If you look at voter ID laws and how they're analyzed, it has a disproportionate impact on uh, communities of color and low-income people and their ability to participate. The other is gerrymandering. And what we're seeing for Pennsylvania, an example, is that um, these strategies are reaching their limits. Um, And similarly, with voter ID laws and the collapse of uh, the voter ID commission that they were pushing, what we need to do in this country is empower more people and have more people participate and uh, less participation from the elites uh, who think that they control things. And what the Black Lives Matter movement was is a continuation of the black freedom struggle. Uh, what the uh, uh, um, the encampment at Standing Rock was the continuation of an indigenous liberation struggle. Uh, the struggle of the dreamers is part of a long struggle of inclusion in this country. And those movements are ongoing. And they're, uh, you know, it, it, what we saw for example, uh, in the high school organizing uh, in the wake of the Parkland shooting is that there is a whole new generation of activists that are coming up and seeing the contradictions of this scam and are saying uh, no more. Ya basta. You know, it's enough. And um, that uh, the what that will become is yet to be seen. But um, come to the movie tonight and hear from these young leaders who are articulating that new vision and be part of this, be part of a movement that reshapes this country. Mm. We'll turn to Rachel Hyman. What uh, what's the framework for this these kind of conversations? What do you, how do you hope it goes? What do you how do we have these successful conversations when a lot of people don't even want to engage? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and I think that um, any good thing worth having uh, requires facing some amount of discomfort or difficulty. I mean, look at what. You know, LDS uh, missionaries do when they're young kids. They travel all around the world meeting new people, um, living for a year by themselves in a new community. I mean, that must take some amount of courage and gumption to do that. And I think having conversations about race and racialized violence and difference and diversity in communities that are predominantly white is going to be hard because we're all learning these skills together. And I think that there are so many resources out there from people who've been doing this work for decades that we can learn from and use. Um, And I think this film is a really good example of that. It's an organizing tool. It's not just a film. Um, It's a film that was made by organizers from that movement to help us think about how we can humanize people who are on the front lines of the struggle for black liberation against racialized violence. Um, And I think I want to bring up something that the sociologist Brene Brown speaks about a lot, which is the difference between shame and guilt and the usefulness of guilt. So shame is, um, so if I'm shaming someone, I'm um, saying they're a bad person. But if like someone is feeling guilt or I'm asking someone to feel a sense of guilt, it's like you did a bad thing and like you feel empathy for the fact that you did a bad thing and want to correct that. And I think what a lot of people in these conversations of race and racialized violence think about is like a sense of a deep shame. Like, oh, you're saying I'm a racist. You're saying I'm a bad person. But what the conversation needs to be more is like a focus on guilt. Like, no, you just did a bad thing. It's a you have a bad ideology um, and we want to change that and work on that together. Mm. 
Uh, Kiki, I want to, uh, Kiki Trawali is with us. Um, you have been involved in ongoing conversations and in, in leading these conversations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how, how to have a successful conversation about race across racial lines. I think coming in with um, an open mind is always a good idea. Um, like how Rachel have said, um, shame and guilt. I think knowing that um, that you're ready to move on from um, like the next step to help better yourself, to help better your community um, is always a great thing. And the reason why I think we should have these conversations and is because the problem behind these conversations is greater than that conversation, you know? Um, we're having these conversations because what's happening, you know? There's a um, lot of other things that are happening that are bad and with police brutality, microaggressions, and things like that. And so conversation is just a starter. It's a way to just um, help help us gain and understanding for each other and then from there um move on and um we have a lot of work to do obviously and i'm uh at the beginning you said um like this is all old news you know why do we keep talking about this is because new problems keep arising the reason why we keep talking about this the reason why we keep fighting for this is because each step we take at some point there's two steps that are going to be taken back because um, there's still not a great a common understanding between um, people of color and um, others and things like that. And so it is old news, but it'll keep being news as long as the problems keep um, rising. It'll be news as long as I'm still seen um, first as a black person um, and things like that. It It'll be news um, as long as people are being shot and left on the streets and things like that. It'll be news and as long as people's lands are being taken. It'll be news. And so conversation is just a starter, and it's a great way. And, you know, as long as you have a conversation first and after having a conversation and you have an understanding and you don't want to move on, that's fine. But as it's better that you start understanding yourself and where you're coming from and where those ideas are coming from. And that will be um, just a starter and things like that. So mm. We just have about three minutes uh, left. Uh, maybe give you know everybody <clears throat> 45 seconds or something to, to, to sum up, starting with uh, Christian Stetler. What's, what's your takeaway? I'd like to go back to Angela Davis. Um, I had the opportunity to take an entire class for a semester with Professor Davis at University of Hawaii. Uh, a couple years ago, and one of the things that she advocates for is decarceration, basically eliminating the prison system, and the first question that everybody always asks is, well, what would you do with the rapists? What would you do with the murderers? And she would say, I don't know, but we'll never know if we don't try to imagine this as, you know, collectively, what would the world look like without prisons? And so I think when we go back to racism, anti-racism at, in Logan in, at Utah State University, uh, U- Logan and Utah State University is a, they have very positive communities for the most part. Everybody comes together. There's, no, there's very little violence, things like this. We have an opportunity to be a trailblazer when it comes to anti-racism. Um, racism is so entrenched in policies that we may not even be able to identify all the time. So if, if you're listening out there, I challenge you to reflect on, on yourself, um, on your community, those around you. 
But what would what would our world look like if it were anti-racist? If we don't imagine that, we'll never get there. Mm. Will Munger, what, uh, 30 seconds? Well, um, you know, I would appeal to other white boys from Cache Valley like myself that uh, our lives are better when we participate in anti-racist struggles. Uh, the horizons of our own humanity are expanded and our ability to uh, listen and empathize and be part of real communities are expanded. Um, and that will involve some uncomfortable conversations, but I invite everyone to come and participate that uh, in that and uh, to really try to strengthen our community collectively. Rachel Hyman. Yeah, I would invite um, our community members to share this experience with us of seeing um, the black liberation movement on screen, on film, hearing a panel of people who've lived this experience, who study this experience, um, and just share this conversation with us. And uh, Kiki Trawali, 30 seconds, give you the last word here. Um, I would say come out tonight, learn about Ferguson, learn about um, Michael Brown, his name, who he is, see his face, see what happened to him, and see the movement behind it and how it's progressed. Um, we have a lot of um, ways to go, but we are um, on our way to um, getting a better understanding of um, America, of us, and things like that. So whose street... Um, is a must, and I think everyone should see it. Well, you'll have a chance to be in the Cache Valley area tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, the USU's Culture and Mental Health Lab, America's Air Library, and Cache Refugee and Immigrant Connection invite you to community conversation and screening of Who's Streets, a documentary about the Ferguson Uprising. The doors open at 6 o'clock, screening conversation at 6.30. This is happening in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. And the screening will be followed by a conversation featuring scholars, organizing, uh, organizers, and community leaders. Uh, there's free admission. Donations are welcome, and proceeds will go to the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection. We've had with us in studio Christian Stetler, USU Access and Diversity Center. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Um, Kiki Trawali, USU Student in Communication Studies, has been with us. Thanks. Thank you. Rachel Hyman, who is a community member and incoming USU pre-med student. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Will Munger, uh, incoming USU graduate student in Climate Adaptation Science. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.